But I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And let me see. Can you hold your Bibles up in the air? Let me see your Bibles. Wonderful. Always bring your Bibles when you come to church. Well, Denise and I came the farthest to church today. We come from Moscow, Russia. And so we're glad that you were able to join us for this meeting today. But when you leave today, we have a gift for you. We're going to give everybody here a copy of my book, which is called Dream Thieves, Overcoming Obstacles to Fulfill Your Dreams. And Jeremy, I was thinking, this is really on time for Vision Sundays. And I'm going to be joining you next week because I want to hear what you have to say. Your church is being viewed around the world. Every week when we're finished with our service in Moscow, I come home and I watch EMIC, I watch Billy Bram, and I watch to see what Jeremy has to say. So you're even touching me in Moscow, Russia, and you are really blessed to be a part of this congregation. But Father, we thank you for today. And Holy Spirit, today we ask you to take us into the scriptures until we feel the scriptures until this becomes something that we experience and we live. Father, we don't want just, just want to hear a message, but Holy Spirit, we're asking you to open this to us like it's never been opened to us before. You're the one that authored this book. You're really the only one with the authority to teach it. And today we look at you as a great master teacher, and we ask you to open the scriptures to us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So open your Bible to John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And in John chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice it says he went up. And the reason the Bible says he went up is because the elevation of Jerusalem was higher than the rest of Israel. So now Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, and verse 2 says, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And in these, or in these five porches, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel at a certain season went down into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. But let's go back to verse 2, and this is where we're going to begin today. It says, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool. Well, today, when you go to the city of Jerusalem, many people visit the pool of Bethesda. And the pool of Bethesda, which people see today, does not look anything like it looked at this particular time. And in fact, when people come to the pool of Bethesda, they start from the side of Jerusalem, which is near the Mount of Olives, and they enter a gate, which today is called the Lion's Gate. It formerly was called Stephen's Gate because it is where Stephen was stoned for his faith. But as you walk through that gate, you enter onto an ancient road, which today is called the Via Della Rosa. And that road is very, very ancient. It dates all the way to the time of Jesus. And the Via Della Rosa runs along the backside of the temple. And it would be very unusual for anybody to be in this particular part of Jerusalem unless you had a specific reason to be there. This area of Jerusalem was primarily for those that were theologically trained or the very wealthy who lived in that particular area, but it really was off the beaten track. And as you walk along that road, you discover why Jesus was in that area of Jerusalem on that day. And most people who come as tourists to Jerusalem walk right past something very important en route to the Pool of Bethesda and don't even realize what they're walking past. As you walk down the Via Della Rosa, to the right, is a very ancient building. And on the side of the building, there is a plaque which most tourists never take time to read. But that plaque identifies that that particular building in the very, very, very bottom of the building was the home where the Virgin Mary was born, and it's where her parents lived. Now, most people don't think about Jesus having grandparents. But on that particular day, Jesus was in that region of Jerusalem to see his grandparents. And now he's come out of their home, and he continues to turn right, and as he walks right, 
he passes what is called the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was two different pools. They were connected by a central wall. One pool was used for the washing of the sheep, which would be carried just across the road onto the Temple Mount, where the sheep would be offered in sacrifice. But then there was an adjoining pool, and this pool had what was considered to be the cleanest and purest water in the whole city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, there were only two or three sources of fresh water. Well, this water was so precious, and this water was so pure that they actually called it the virgin's spring or the virgin's well to denote how pure the water was. And because this was so rare in Jerusalem, the priesthood who were working just across the street on the temple grounds decided they would claim that little spring of water for themselves and they would develop the property. And that is what they did. And originally they came in, they began to hollow out the ground all around this well. And finally, they begin to line the sides of the pool with beautiful, beautiful marble. And then they begin to cover the pavement with marble. And in fact, the Greek word for pool is the Greek word kolombrethra. It describes a pool that is highly, highly developed. And if you grew up watching the Beverly Hillbillies, what did they have in their backyard? A cement pond. That's what this was. And in fact, this word kolombrethra is only used two times in the New Testament. It is used here to describe the Pool of Bethesda, and it's also used to describe the Pool of Siloam. Well, recently they have excavated the Pool of Siloam. So if you go to the Pool of Siloam, which was a columbrethra, then you can understand exactly what the Pool of Bethesda originally looked like. It was beautiful. And in fact, the priesthood loved this little spring of water so much that they claimed it for themselves. They built walls around it, and if we had been allowed to peek into history, we would have seen the priests who were considered to be the richest and the most intelligent of the day in that pool, swimming in those waters, enjoying it, coming there by the droves after they were finished serving in the Temple Mount. And because it was such a special place, they decided they would then develop the property even more, and they began to build what were called covered porticos. Here, the King James Version calls it porches, but a covered portico was a porch with a terracotta roof with beautiful, beautiful columns. And when you developed a covered portico, the floor was covered with beautiful, beautiful mosaics. The walls were covered with frescoes. And when the priests were finished swimming, in the pool, then they would sit under the canopy above them and they would be served lunch by servers who would come to serve them. And because so many priests continued coming to this place, they said one covered portico is not enough. So they added a second, they added a third, they added a fourth, they added a fifth, until finally this entire body of water was covered by covered porches. And this is very important to this story. And the reason this is important is because this body of water was so encased in covered porches that it would be impossible for wind to blow on this water and to move the water. You'll see why that's important in just a moment. But by the time that we come to John chapter 5 and verse 1, something has radically happened to this place. And in fact, this place has become so disgusting that the priesthood have abandoned it. After they have spent all the money to develop it, Something happened. What happened? The spring in the bottom of the pool began to dry up. And because it dried up, no water flowed into the pool and no water flowed out of the pool. And because no water flowed in and no water flowed out, and because this was Israel, which gets very, very hot, it became like a stagnant body of water. Now, if you've ever been out in the countryside, in the heat of the summer, and you come across a little pond that has no outlet, no water flows in, no water flows out, it just captures water and sits there in the heat of the sun, you know that a little stagnant pond of water is quite a disgusting place. And just like those ponds, which begin to grow algae and just becomes disgusting and stinks, this place, which once was so luxurious, now has turned into a stagnant body of water. It's beginning to grow green slime. 
It stinks terribly. And the priesthood said, this place is no longer worthy of us. And they begin to abandon it. And by the time that you come to John chapter 5, that is what it is. And remarkably, in this place, which is so disgusting, there are many, many sick people who have come to live. And notice in verse 2, the Bible says, Now there is a Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, a highly developed pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, the word called would be better translated, which was nicknamed in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda. The word Bethesda means house of mercy. It can be translated house of goodness or even the house of grace. And the sick people believed that this disgusting place somehow became a location where the goodness of God was occasionally poured out. And that's why they called it the house of goodness. They called it the house of mercy because mercy miracles took place in this pool. They called it the house of grace because God, by his grace, would move and would touch the sick people that were in this place. And when you come to verse 2, we find that there was a great multitude of these sick people laying under these five covered porticos. And verse 2 tells us how many sick people were there. It says, in these, that is, in these five covered porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk. The word laid is a Greek word which describes people literally piled on top of each other, the Greek word katechemi. And then the Holy Spirit adds the word multitude, which is the Greek word plethos. It describes so many people packed into this place that if we'd been allowed to peek into it, it would have looked like sardines in a can. One sick person laying right against another sick person, even laying on top of each other. They were all piled into this place. And the Bible then tells us what kind of sick people were in this place. It says, impotent folk, blind, halt, and withered, and they were all there waiting for the moving of the water. The word impotent is the Greek word asthenios. It describes somebody so sick that they are bedfast. They can no longer be picked up and carried to see a doctor. Now they are homebound. So when you see this word impotent, folk, we find that bedfast people were in this place. But not only that, it says blind. And the word blind is the Greek word tuflos. The word blind, the Greek word tuflos, is not just people who cannot see, but this word tuflos describes those who have no eyes to see. And interestingly, this is the very word which is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul writes that the God of this world has done what? Blinded the minds of unbelievers which means unbelievers don't even have eyes to see the gospel. And that is why sometimes when you share the gospel with them, it seems they just can't see what you're saying. Unbelievers do not have eyes to see. And it's the preaching of the gospel that creates eyes so they can see the truth of the gospel. And that's why we have to teach the word of God. But the blind were in this place. Not only those they were blind because they just couldn't see, but even those who had no eyes to see. And the next category is the halt. And the word halt is a Greek word which describes those that have been maimed in some kind of an accident, maybe in some kind of an agricultural accident. Now they are missing a hand or they're missing an arm or they're missing some limb. So already we've seen that in this disgusting place are critically ill people. Number one, esthenios, the word impotent folk, those that are bedfast, they're so sick they can't get up, they cannot physically move. Number two, those that are blind they can't see, including those who have no eyes to see. Next, we see the halt. The halt, those that are missing a limb, they cannot function in life because something is missing from their body. And then finally, it says the withered. Now, if you have a new translation, that word withered may be translated as the word paralyzed. But the word paralyzed and the word withered are both bad translations. In Greek, it is the word zeros. Can you hear another word? It's where we get the word zero. And here we have the Holy Spirit summarizing what society thought of the people who were in the pool of Bethesda. In the mind of society, 
These were useless eaters who had nothing to contribute to society because of their frail condition. They were the zeros of society. And now they are all in this place. And not just one or two of them, but the Bible says, Catechami, they're laying on top of each other. Plathos, they're packed in this place almost like sardines in a can, one up against the next. And the Bible says they were all waiting for the moving of the water. Well, we've already seen the wind cannot move this water. That's why I wanted you to understand about these five covered porches. These five covered porches provided such protection that even if the wind were blowing, the wind would not be able to blow on this body of water because of the porches that surrounded it. And yet the people are there waiting for the moving of the water. And all of these sick people called this place Bethesda, the house of mercy. Well, it doesn't look very merciful. They call it the house of goodness. Well, naturally speaking, it doesn't look very good. They call it the house of grace. It doesn't look very graceful, but yet for some reason, all of these people have left their homes and they have gathered in this place. And in fact, if you had tried to walk into the Pool of Bethesda, you would have had difficulty even walking through the porches because you would have had to step over one person and another person and another person to make your way around the pool. And the Bible tells us then in the following verse, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool. When the Bible says went down, it's a Greek word katabino, which means to step down just like if you were stepping down a set of steps, an angel gradually stepped down into the pool at a certain season, and the season was unknown. No one ever knew when this was going to take place. And troubled the water. The word troubled is the Greek word terrasso. The word trasso means to agitate fiercely. The best way I know how to explain this troubling of the water would be what you see in your bathtub when you pull, what's that called? I forgot the word in English. What is that called? When you pull the plug out of the drain, what do you see? The water begins to swirl like this. That's what that word terrasso means. So from time to time, the sick would be laying around the pool, and suddenly the water would begin to move in a circular fashion. Well, naturally speaking, there's no reason that this body should move in a circular fashion. No wind can touch the water. The spring or the well in the bottom of the pool has completely dried up. No water's flowing in. No water is flowing out. And suddenly the water begins to swirl fiercely, fiercely, fiercely until the water is slushing out the sides of the pool onto the sick people that are laying all around it. And the sick people are laying there, according to verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. And the word waiting is the Greek word ekadekomai, which means they had all of their expectation out, which means if you'd walked into that place and had seen those sick people, they were all laying in the same direction with their eyes fixed on the water. They were all waiting expectantly for the next moment when something supernatural was going to take place in this water. And though they never saw an angel, they believed it was angelic activity because there was no other explanation for the moving of the water. And verse 4 says, Whosoever then first, after the fierce agitation of the water stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. The word disease is the Greek word nosos, which always describes a terminal condition, which lets us know that naturally there was no medical cure for the people who were laying around the pool of Bethesda. These were people who were terminally or chronically in their condition. And then when you come to verse 5, it says, And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? But notice in verse 5, it says this man had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. 
The word had is the Greek word echo, which means to have, to hold, or to embrace, which means this man didn't just have a sickness, but this sickness had him. This man was in the embrace of this infirmity. It was literally controlling him. And it's quite possible that he had been in this place for 38 years. 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lie, everybody say saw. The word saw is the Greek word hereo. It means to make a scrutinizing, penetrating look. And when Jesus scrutinizingly looked at this man, when Jesus took a penetrating look at this man, Jesus saw him lie. Well, at first you would say, of course, the man was laying down. But this word hare, which here is translated as the word saw, tells us Jesus was not just looking at the man's outward condition. This word saw, the Greek word hare, means to take a scrutinizingly penetrating look, which means Jesus was looking into the interior of this man. And Jesus could see this man was not just physically laying down, but spiritually on the inside, this man had laid down. This man had given up. And in fact, if you study the ministry of Jesus throughout the four Gospels, you will find that Jesus is quite often taking an eternal look at people as he addresses them to discern what is their inward spiritual condition. And he taught his disciples to do the same thing. And an example of this is in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, we see that Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And as they go into the gate beautiful, they see a man that is laying there asking alms of them that enter into the temple. And the Bible says, Peter and John fastening their eyes on him. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek uses the little preposition ice. A better translation would be Peter and John fastening their eyes into him. They were looking into this man to determine what was his spiritual condition. They learned that from Jesus. And my friends, I want to tell you that when you deal with people, always observe the outward man, because the outward man is usually a reflection of an inward condition. Jesus saw this man physically laying down, and Jesus knew he needed to look in this man to see if this man inwardly was standing up or whether inwardly he was also laying down. Denise and I first learned this when we moved to the former Soviet Union 31 years ago. And when we moved to the former Soviet Union, which was still the Soviet Union at that time, we lived in a little town in the Republic of Latvia, which was called Yelgava. And Denise and I were just dumbfounded by the vast numbers of people that we would see who were walking down the street all bent over, all bent over, without canes, just walking as if they could not stand up. And I wondered, what is wrong with all of these people? Their outward body reflected an inward condition. They were living under oppression, and the oppression which ruled their spirits affected their bodies, and their bodies begin to follow that inward spiritual condition. And guess what? Today, hope has come to our part of the world, and we hardly see anybody walking around bent over because inwardly things have changed. But when you minister to people, always remember to observe what you see outwardly and ask the Holy Spirit to help you discern inwardly what is happening with every person that you minister to. And Jesus saw him. Jesus took a deep look into this man. And when Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time, long time in the Greek is the word chronos, it describes a chronic condition. When Jesus knew this was a chronic condition, he asked him, wilt thou be made whole? Well, I think that we would probably all agree that that is a very strange question to ask a sick man who has obviously come to this place because he wants to be made whole. And in fact, there are some things we can assume to be true about this man. If this man is as critically ill as the Bible says he is, it is unlikely that his family wanted him to leave the comfort of their home and relocate his life to a dirty, stinking, stagnant body of water filled with a whole bunch of other sick people. 
But this man heard that something miraculous was happening in this place. A place where God's grace was poured out. A grace where mercy, miracles, and goodness occurred. And against the will of his family, this man left his home, was transported to the pool of Bethesda, where he took his place among all the other sick people that were piled into this place. And he, like them, is laying on his side with his eyes fixed on the water, waiting for the agitation of the water. And when Jesus walked in, Jesus saw him. And Jesus could see physically he was laying down. Jesus could see that inwardly this man had given up hope. And again, it's quite possible that this man had been there for 38 years. And in fact, in all the years that he's been in the pool of Bethesda, he has seen miracle after miracle after miracle. He could even write a bestseller called the Miracles of Bethesda. He could document all the miracles that he has seen happen in this place. But 38 years later, he's still laying there waiting for his day to come. And Jesus said, wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou in Greek is a direct form of the Greek word thelo. It really means what do you want? What do you want? The King James Version says, wilt thou be made whole? The word whole is the Greek word hugies. The word hugies is where we get the Greek, the English word for hygiene. It describes a life that is pristine, a life that is all cleaned up. It is the equivalent of Jesus saying to him, would you like to have your life back again? Now, why would Jesus ask this sick person, that question, when this sick person is obviously there because he wants to get his life back again. Well, think about it. If this man has been laying there for 38 years, it means for 38 years he's been living on the social system. This man's not had a job for 38 years. Somebody else has been clothing him. Somebody else has been feeding him for 38 years. And in fact, in 38 years, he has lost contact with all of his friends outside the Pool of Bethesda. The only people he really knows are the people who are there with him. They are infirmed. They're sick just like him. And in a very real way, he didn't just have an infirmity, but his infirmity had become his identity. He was a sick man. He thought like a sick man. He felt like a sick man. Other people fed him. Other people took care of him. And if this man gets well, if he gets his life back again, he's going to have to get up. He's going to have to move out of the pool of Bethesda, which means he's going to lose those friends, and he's going to have to choose a brand new group of friends. If he really is made whole, if he gets his life back again, he is going to have to get a job. And in 38 years, technology has changed. For him to get a job may mean he's going to have to go to school and learn some technology. This man's going to have to feed himself and take care of himself. And not only that, if he gets his life back again, he's going to have to change the way that he thinks. He can't think like a sick person any longer. He can't behave like a sick person. And when Jesus said, would you like to have your life back again? It was the equivalent of saying, would you like to have a radical sweeping change that will absolutely fix everything in your life that requires something very serious of you. And of course, Jesus knows, just like most of us know, that it's very easy to say you want to change. But when you are confronted with what change really means, some people decide, well, you know, where I am is not the best, but... (sighs) The requirements of change are so severe, I guess I can continue just to live in my infirmity. It's interesting, Jeremy. The last time I preached this was at your parents' church. And on that particular Sunday, guess who was there? The entire front row was filled with judges from Texas. 
And I kept wondering, what are they thinking about this message? When the service was over, they formed a circle around me in the green room. And one of them spoke on behalf of the others and said, we want to thank you for your message today. Because as judges, we hear people say all the time that they want to change. But they don't mean a word of it when they find out what change really means. That was what a judge said to me. Well, how many of you know from your own life? The times that you've said, God, change me. God, do this. God, do this. Until you find out what that change really means for you. God, I want to be debt free. And then you find out that means you can't use the credit cards. It's easy to say you want to be debt free until you find out what is the requirement for freedom. Or someone who says, God, I want to lose weight. And they say it all the way to the refrigerator, and they stand in front of the refrigerator and think about it real hard as they open it. They don't have the ability to say no. So even though God offers them freedom, they walk away with their same bondage. I understand that because I lost 100 pounds six years ago. I said to the Lord, I want to change. I want to change. I want to change. And the Lord kept saying to me, then when are you going to change? And finally, I was put into a situation where God just confronted me, just like Jesus was confronting this man. Thank God for those moments when Jesus confronts us. And Jesus was literally saying to this man, what do you really want? You're here because you say you want to change, but what do you really want? The Greek word thales, come on, tell me, what do you want? Do you really want your life back again? And of course, it was a simple question which required a simple answer. Do you want to change? The answer should have been yes or no. But people don't like confrontive questions which require just a yes or a no. It's like when you counsel people, you ask them something very simple and they give you a convoluted answer. They try to explain why they are the way they are, why the way they've never been able to change. They give you a convoluted answer when all you really need to know is, do you want to change? The answer is yes or no. And Jesus asked the man, do you want your life back again? And notice how the man answered Jesus. And the impotent man answered and said, Sir, either underline or circle the word sir, because this is really the key to this entire text. The impotent man answered and said, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So Jesus asked him a simple question. Do you want to change? Do you want to get your life back again? And the man says, you know, Lord, I would change, but you know, I have no man. Which is what people still say today. I would change if my wife would help me. I would change if my husband would be different. I would change if my church would just be there for me. People try to push their lack of change on everybody else. And this man says, I would, but I have no man. When the water is troubled, when I see the water is moving, I know the angel is in the water and angelic activity is happening to put me into the pool. The word put into is the Greek word balo. This man is being so dramatic. He says, I have no man balo to pick me up and throw me over everybody else into the water, but while I'm coming or dragging myself to the edge of the pool, Another steps down before me. Verse 8. But Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. The only reason Jesus knew he could say that to this man is because of what the man said to Jesus in verse 7. Look at it again. The impotent man answered and said unto him, What? Sir. Everybody say, Sir. Notice the word sir is a capitalized S. In Greek, it is the word kurios, which is the word for Lord. And in Greek, it is a capital K, which means at this moment, this infirmed man made the choice to recognize the absolute authority of Jesus and expressed his willingness to do anything that Jesus would tell him to do. And likewise, change will never come into your life until you recognize the authority of Jesus and until you are willing to do anything that Jesus tells you to do. And when Jesus heard 
this man call him Lord, Jesus knew the door was opened. Hold your finger here. I'll give you another example of this. Turn over to Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, we find the example of Peter. And when you come to Luke chapter 5, you find that Peter has had his fifth encounter with Jesus. I think this is totally amazing. Peter has met Jesus. Jesus has been in Peter's house. Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. Sick people have come into Peter's house. He's had four encounters with Jesus, but he has not been converted yet. So my friends, I want to tell you, if you've tried to share Christ with a friend and they don't come around the first time, just keep going again and again and again. It took five encounters with Christ before Peter was converted. And look, if you would, at Luke chapter 5. And it came to pass, as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, Jesus stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5, and Simon answering said unto him, what? Master. Notice again a capital M. Here in Greek, it is the same word. He recognized the authority of Jesus, which means, though Peter believed there were no fish to catch, he recognized the authority of Jesus and said he would do whatever Jesus told him to do. And my friends, likewise, we have to call Jesus Lord and say we will do whatever he tells us to do in order to effect change in our life. And that was the moment that Peter hauled in a big group of fish and was converted. It did not happen until he recognized the authority of Jesus. But now if you would go back over to John chapter 5. This man calls Jesus sir, or in Greek it says kurios with a capital K. He calls Jesus Lord, which means he's recognizing Jesus' authority and his willingness to do whatever Jesus tells him to do. Sir, Lord, I have no man. But when Jesus heard this man call him Lord, Jesus knew he had an entrance to speak to this man. So now in verse 8, Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Everybody say walk. The word walk in Greek is the word peripateo. A better translation would be rise, pick up your bed, and get moving. Get moving. That was Jesus' command to this man. Pick up your bed. Pick up the thing you've been laying on. Pick up your crutch. It's time for you to get moving. And immediately, the Greek says, Eathus, the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. He got moving. And then verse 9 says, and on the same day was the what? The Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Well, you have to understand that the Jews were so religious about the Sabbath day, they did nothing to exert any kind of physical energy. In fact, even today, if you go to the country of Israel and you're there on the Sabbath day, I would advise you not to get on the Sabbath day elevator in the hotel. Because the Jews are so religious about keeping the Sabbath day, they believe you will violate the law of the Sabbath if you use energy to push a button in the elevator. That's work. That's energy. And on the Sabbath day, you're not to exert any kind of energy. So in the big hotels with multiple floors, there is a Sabbath day elevator which automatically stops on every single floor going up and going down because it is against the rules of the Sabbath day to push a button on the Sabbath day. And now this man is doing what? He has picked up his bed. He is exerting energy on 
the Sabbath day. And according to the book of Jeremiah, they have the right to stone this man immediately for breaking the law of the Sabbath. And not only that, Jesus told him to get moving the Greek word peripatel, which means start walking around. And you're going to find out in just a moment, he walked all the way from the pool of Bethesda across the street into the temple grounds carrying his bed. And on the Sabbath day, you were only allowed to take a certain number of steps. And this man has broken the rules from beginning to end. And guess who it was who told him to break the rules? It was Jesus, who is not very religious. Now, we tend to think that a religious spirit always has to do with religion. But you know what a religious spirit is? A religious spirit is a spirit that is threatened by change. A religious spirit is traditional. It doesn't like anything to change. And so when change begins to take place, those that have a religious spirit are often threatened by change. And rather than rejoice with change, they'll try to stop the change, kill the change. This is why when your life changed and you came home to your family and you told them that you were different, they may not have believed you and they may not have even rejoiced with you. They may have said, and who do you think you are? Now you're gonna say you're different from us? What do you mean you've changed? Change is threatening to people that are not changing. And rather than rejoice, they might try to put your light out and say to you, just get back where you were. And that's what the Jews said to this man. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath day. This is not a good time to change. Just get back on your bed again. But Jesus had told this man to get moving. And this man was moving. And notice what the Bible tells us next. This is so powerful. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured. By the way, take a note of the word cured. The word cured is the Greek word therapeo. Do you hear another word in that? Therapy. Do you know that is the word which was most often used to describe the healing ministry of Jesus? It's very important because it tells us Jesus didn't just touch people and pray for them, but the Greek word would literally be translated, he therapied them, which means when Jesus released the power, most often he would require the recipient to do something physically to correspond with that power, to put their works with that power. That's why Jesus would say to a man with a withered arm, what would he say? Stretch forth your arm. Do you know how difficult that would be for a person with a withered arm? But Jesus knew they had to do something by faith. They had to release their faith. Again, he taught this to the disciples. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the Bible says they said to the man that was lame, get up and walk. And if you read that in Acts chapter 3, it says that each got on either side of that crippled man, and they began to walk him. That man did not walk alone. They got on either side of him and said, come on, you can do this. And the Bible says his bones and ankles were strengthened. The Greek says with every step he took, his feet became stronger and his steps became stronger. They walked him right into his healing. It wasn't enough just to pray for them. They had to require him to do something. And that's why when you pray for people, if they've got a bad back, you should tell them to try to bend their back. If they've got something wrong with their arm, they should try to move their arm. There has to be some kind of a corresponding action. That is the primary word which is used to describe the healing ministry of Jesus. And this is where many believers miss it. We pray for people, walk away, and never ask them to do anything. But when they begin to do something is often when the healing comes into manifestation. This is very important to remember. But now this man has picked up his mat. He's walking. He's moving as Jesus has told him to do. And the Bible says in verse 11, And he said to the Jews, He that made me whole... The Greek, hugies, he that gave my life back to me again. The same said unto me, take up thy bed and get moving, walk. And they asked him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed, the Greek literally says, he that was therapied, knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Verse 14, and afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple. 
and said unto him, Behold, thou art whole. But notice in verse 14, it says, Jesus findeth him. The word findeth is the Greek word heurisko. The word heurisko means to make a very intensive scholarly search, which means Jesus was not going to leave until he found that man. And the use of this word means that he said to his disciples, find me that man. And the reason they had to look for that man is because they left the pool of Bethesda. Jesus told him to get moving, and this man really got moving. And they looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally they found him. The Greek word heurisko which is also where we get the word eureka, which means when Jesus found this man, it was a eureka moment. He was so thrilled to see this man, which tells us something about follow-up ministry. It's not enough just to pray for somebody and leave them. Jesus followed up. He was not going to leave until he found out where was this man and what was his condition. And notice what Jesus said to the man. What does he say? Behold, everybody said, behold. Behold, thou art made whole. The word behold is the Greek word edu. It's one of those words in the New Testament that's almost impossible to translate. Untranslatable words would be the word grace, so difficult to translate. The word agape, almost impossible to translate. And this word behold. This word behold captures the emotions of someone who sees something so magnificent that they don't even know how to express what they're seeing. A better translation of this verse would be, and wow, wow, you are made whole. Jesus saw this man, and Jesus was so impressed with the change that had taken place in this man's life, that the only thing Jesus could say was, wow. How many of you want Jesus to look at you and say, wow, now that is amazing. That's how impressed Jesus was by the change that took place in this man's life. Wow. That's what I want Jesus to say about me. I want him to look at me, recalling who I was when I was young, everything I've lived in my life, all the unlikely scenarios. I want Jesus to look at me and say, wow, don't you want Jesus to say that about you? That's how impressed Jesus was. Wow, you got your life back again. And then he added these words. Behold, wow, thou art made whole. You've gotten your life back. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Which implies that some kind of a wrong action had first opened the door for this infirmity to come into this man's life. And now Jesus is saying, let's not repeat what we did in the past. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole, or better translation, it was Jesus which gave him his life back again. But for this man to walk into wholeness, he had to be willing to call Jesus, Sir, Lord. For this man to receive what Jesus had to give him, he had to be willing to get up and leave that place. Think of the people that you've known who said they want to change, but they're comfortable with their surroundings, they're comfortable with their set of friends, even though their friends may not be so good for them. You know, it's really interesting, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says that we're to move away from the sin which does so easily beset us. In Greek, it is the word euperistatos. The word you describes something that's comfortable. The word peri describes what surrounds you. The word status means to stand. It describes your environment. There are some environments you're going to have to get out of 
if you're going to change. And if you're with an old set of friends and you're accustomed to thinking an old way with them, talking with them a certain way, you may have to make a break from them in order for you to move into the wholeness that you've been saying that you want. This man had to learn to think different. He had to be willing to say, Lord, I'll even learn to think different. I'll get a job if I have to get a job. I'll do anything you tell me to do. And just imagine this. When Jesus spoke to him and said, take up your bed and walk, what do you think all the other sick people in that place thought or possibly even said? I can hear them saying, you are so rude. You're speaking to a man laying on a mat because he doesn't have any legs that work and you're telling him to get up and walk. How dare you speak to a crippled man like this? And if this man had not called Jesus Lord and said, I'll do anything you tell me to do, this man would have never moved out of that place. But recognizing Jesus' authority opened the door for this sweeping change to come into his life. And that's the same for you. That's the same for you. Jesus is standing by. He's got his eyes fixed on you. He sees you. He even knows if you've been in a chronic condition in your marriage, a chronic condition in your finances, a chronic condition in your finances or just in the way that you're thinking and you just feel like you just can't break free. Jesus sees all of that. And the moment he hears you really surrender to him, that's when he's going to tell you it's time to get up and get moving. And if you'll do what he tells you to do, you'll walk out of your infirmity into wholeness and you'll get moving again. That's what was on my heart to minister to you today. I want you to put your hand on your heart and I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we know from Hebrews 13 verse 8 that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you did it then, you're doing it now. Lord, I pray for every person in this room today that has said, Lord, I want to change. I ask, Lord, that you bring us to a place, let it begin even right now, where we really call you Lord, and we give you the right to instruct us what to do and give us the power and the courage to obey you so that we can get up and we can get moving. And I thank you for this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for letting me minister to you today. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you and remember... You are always welcome here in the House of Faith.